Good afternoon, Dan Guerra here from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Today is the 10th of March, 2021. I want to recap yesterday's discussion of reactive oxygen real quickly, and then we'll move on from there. <clears throat> uh, first of all, I want to remind you that superoxide is produced extracellularly, and the most common form of uh, synthesis is via NADPH oxidase, or NOx, at the plasma membrane. And as I told you, can also be synthesized intracellularly by the mitochondrial electron transport chain, uh, among other subcellular compartments. <clears throat> now, within the, the min, within the mitochondria, superoxide will target iron sulfur clusters to release Fe2 iron and reduces ferric iron to ferrous iron. So superoxide is dismutated eventually to hydrogen peroxide by the SOD enzymes, uh, one and two, superoxide dismutases. The hydrogen peroxide, remember, diffuses through membranes to react with proteins and DNA and lipids and can be detoxified to water by the cellular peroxidases, including such enzymes as catalases, glutathione peroxidase, peroxidoreductases. Um, superoxide also will produce peroxynitrite through the reaction with nitric oxide. And the peroxyl radical, which is the OH dot, is formed from the reaction of hydrogen peroxide with Fe2+. And the decomposition of peroxynitrite and initiates the lipid peroxidation cascade. So first you get the peroxyl radical or hydroxyl radical reacting with lipids to form lipid radicals, which react with oxygen to form lipid peroxide radicals. The lipid peroxide radicals then react with other lipids that have unsaturated centers to reform the lipid peroxides and the lipid radicals, plus new lipid hydroperoxides. And the cycle continues in a chain reaction sort of method. So excessive lipid peroxidation ultimately leads to, because iron is associated with these reactions, the programmed cell death known as ferrotosis. Okay, This is a really important summary then of reactive oxygen just in the mitochondria. And I want to make sure I got that in. So continuing on, because we're talking about amino acid metabolism, we have to talk about many of these cofactors. <clears throat> So I want to spend just a moment talking about pyridoxal phosphate or vitamin B6. That is means that that means it's essential in diet. So let's get right into this. Vitamin B6 is actually a group of three related compounds. They are 3-hydroxy-2-methylpyrimidine derivatives. The derivative pyridoxine is an alcohol. Pyridoxal, of course, is the aldehyde, and pyridoxamine is the the one that contains the amino group. Now, the respective 5-prime phosphate esters are pyridoxine 5-prime phosphate, or PNP, pyridoxyl 5-prime phosphate, PLP, and pyridoxamine 5-prime phosphate, PMP. And those are actually the biologically active coenzymes. <clears throat> They're all water-soluble, as you might guess, and they can be interconverted in normal human metabolism. PLP, of course, is a major form that's used for any of the pyridoxine or pyroxidine 
dependent enzymes. Those enzymes typically catalyze more than, well, about 100 or more actually essential biochemical reactions uh, involved in multiple aspects of human biochemistry. So you have B6 vitamers, and they're similarly absorbed in the upper jejunum and not very much in the ileum. But before absorption, the phosphate esters, of course, are hydrolyzed by an enzyme that's very common in serum. It's called alkaline phosphate. It's also common in the cytoplasm. Um, and you also have a whole host of other phosphatases, which will remove that phosphate. So the non-phosphorylated form of these vitamers, which are the, the different forms basically of the peroxidines, right? the non-phosphorylated forms will enter mucosal cells by two different uh, methods. One is according to luminal concentration, and the other is, of course, to, due to diffusion mechanisms. So at low concentrations, the B6 vitamins enter the cell by an active process. It's regulated by um, concentration gradient. So low concentrations, the vitamins enter the cell by an active process, actually regulated by yet other concentration gradients that relate to the resynthesis of the active form. Now, at high concentrations, transport is a non-saturable passive diffusion. Once in the cell, the vitamins are phosphorylated again by ATP-dependent peroxy, peroxidine kinases in a process that ultimately uh, has been termed metabolic trapping. It's the same thing that happens when you take a sugar in like glucose and you carry out glucokinase to make glucose 6-phosphate or fructose to make fructose 6-phosphate or fructose 1-phosphate for that matter. Once you phosphorylate, a water-soluble compound, unless it has a specific transporter, such as the liver being able to transport glucose, that compound is trapped. So phosphorylation traps metabolites in the cell once they are phosphorylated. And again, that's called metabolic trapping. So the phosphorylated form simply can't traverse the membrane, and so it has to be dephosphorylated before it can move through any of the membranes, including the intracellular membranes and the basolateral membrane, which is uh, on which is part of the mucosal cell. Okay. However, once in circulation, most of these B6 vitamins are transported to the hepatic tissue, where they are again phosphorylated, and where they do much of their work, they're phosphorylated to either PNP, PLP, or PMP, and then ultimately they are re-released into the plasma. Okay. So some of the reactions of PLP are transamination of amino acids to alpha-keto acids. We've talked a lot about this. And of course, when you generate an alpha-keto acid, you can use that carbon for gluconeogenesis. This is how amino acids can be converted to glucose. You also have the formation of alpha-aminolevulinic acid, which of course is a precursor to heme, which is the prosthetic group for hemoglobin, and for all heme-containing enzymes, cofactors, and proteins that you find, for example, in electron transport. And you also have this um, alpha-aminolevulinic uh, acid involved in a serine palmitic wheel transferase reaction, which is essential for sphingomyelin biosynthesis. Right? That makes the sphingosine base. Now, decarboxylation of L-amino acids to yield free amines 
that function ultimately as neurotransmitters. Hormones or biogenic amines is also a series of reaction mechanisms that require PLP. In the nervous system, um, pyridoxal dependent enzymes fall into two main categories then, the transaminases and the L-amino acid decarboxylases. The crucial PLP-dependent steps synthesis of several neurotransmitters. So you get an enzymatic decarboxylation of 3,4-dihydroxyphenylalanine to dopamine. So that's dopa to dopamine. Conversion of tryptophan uh, to serotonin is another very important reaction that utilizes PLP. Conversion of glutamic acid to gamma aminobutyric acid is another one. We've talked about this. And uh, in any one carbon unit transfer also requires pyridoxyl phosphate. Okay, so this includes folic acid metabolism. So you also, of course, have, when you think about it, one carbon methyl units, uh, and they can be obtained from serine initially, and they can be transferred to tetrahydrofolate. That's after you've reduced folate using uh, the hydrofolate reductase. And then that can yield that all-important 5,10-methylene tetrahydrofolate that we were talking about yesterday, which can enter into the methionine pathway. Right? So <clears throat> you can convert pyridox uh, pyroxidine to pyridoxal phosphate just using kinases and then reverse the reaction with the phosphatase. Same thing can happen with the aldehyde and with the amine. Okay, So these reactions are quite common in basically all cells. I want to remind you, too, that this glutamate decarboxylation by uh, glutamate dehydrogenase is really significant <clears throat> because you, you use this lysine 405 pyridoxyl phosphate adduct, and that allows for the loss of carbon dioxide to make a, an intermediate quinoid. That quinoid then can, if the, if the alpha carbon is protonated, uh, and water is passed over the bond, you'll make gamma aminobutyric acid. However, if it's protonated at the C4 prime, which is part of the backbone of the quinoid, okay, you'll make PMP, pyridoxal monophosphate, and you will make an intermediate in the synthesis of GABA. So that intermediate then, that succinate semialdehyde, can be used then to ultimately run through the enzymatic reaction one more time, a second passage through glutamate decarboxylation, uh, and then that will yield GABA, okay? So understand where this is linked together. Alpha-ketoglutarate and glutamate through the aspartate uh, uh, acyltransferase reaction, aminotransferase reaction, excuse me, will synthesize aspartate and OAA, OAA converted then uh, to alpha-ketoglutarate. Alpha-ketoglutarate can pick up the amino group and can synthesize glutamic acid, right? That's the glutamate dehydrogenase reaction. That's the, that's the synthesizing glutamate um, version of that reaction. Remember that glutamine can also be converted to glutamate and glutamate back to glutamine just by running that cycle, like glutamine synthase cycle, right? <clears throat> Then you have this entire GABA shunt where glutamate can be decarboxylated, as I just told you, 
through one of two simultaneous reactions that are working in tandem to generate gamma-immunobutyric acid. Uh, and gamma-immunobutyric uh, gamma acid itself can also be synthesized from succinate semialdehyde. Uh, and so you have multiple routes, right? You have the succinate semialdehyde, the SSA I told you about, and then you have directly from glutamate. That's important to understand. So you have like a reservoir there to make GABA, right? Remember, GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter, while glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter. So just that one reaction, decarboxylation, will give you either excitation or inhibition in closing those channels, right? So it's a very significant equipoise in neurotransmission, just the coupling of the glutamine, glutamate, and GABA, okay? But you always remember that because it's essential to keep track of this when you're thinking about neurotransmission in real time. Now, when the brain concentration of the inhibitory neurotransmitter GABA diminishes below some threshold level, the excess neuronal excitation can actually lead to convulsion. The imbalance in neurotransmission, of course, is corrected by an inhibition of the enzyme gamma-aminobutyric acid aminotransferase. That catalyzes the catalyzes conversion of GABA to the excitatory neurotransmitter glutamate. It also has been found that raising GABA levels can antagonize what's called a rapid elevation and release of dopamine in the nucleus accumbens, which is responsible for the reward pathway uh, as much described in addiction. <clears throat> Therefore, the design of new inhibitors, okay, which are, are always on uh, the pharmaceutical research uh, table, design of new inhibitors of the GABA transferase reaction, which increases brain GABA levels, is an important approach to new treatments for epilepsy and, you might guess, addiction. So this is a very key thing here. Um, remember that GABA then uh, will be anti-seizure, anti-addiction. And so uh, blocking that GABA transferase reaction, right, that amino transferase reaction using mechanism-based inactivators has become a very important focal point in pharmacology. I want you to keep that in mind. <clears throat> now, the, for, in terms of the physiology of PLP concentration, the influence of physiological processes on the concentration of PLP, increase in physical activity, particularly aerobic, will increase PLP absorption. You also get an increase in PLP absorption with age and with pregnancy. You also will get an increase, of course, because of the activity of alkaline phosphatase. Remember, because you're going to remove the phosphate. So that means the pyridoxine can move freely because you've removed the phosphate. Okay. So these are some parameters that you're not normally, um, the attention isn't normally brought to you, but I want you to keep that in mind, right? All right. So we'll talk quickly about thiamine, which is vitamin B1. Now, <clears throat> Let's go back to glycolysis in the TCA cycle. Remember, glucose is converted ultimately to pyruvate, pyruvate dehydrogenase to acetyl-CoA. Acetyl-CoA can be used, if you're thinking about neurotransmission, to synthesize acetylcholine. Remember, acetylcholine, the choline portion of that is also synthesized 
by C1 metabolism that's serine losing its um, carboxylic acid group, making ethanolamine. So you have ethanolamine that becomes trimethylated by acetylcyanothionine to make choline, and then acetyl-CoA plus choline makes uh, acetyl-CoA plus choline makes acetylcholine, right? Acetyl-CoA can also be used in de novo synthesis of the lipids, particularly myelin. So that's how you get the myelin sheath, right? Also remember, of course, the acetyl-CoA can, be, can enter the TCA cycle combined with oxaloacetic acid and after synthesizing citrate, go on to make alpha-ketoglutarate and the alpha-ketoglutarate can in it pleurotically be removed from the TCA cycle to make glutamate, GABA, and back to aspartic acid. However, you also have alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase, which will synthesize succinyl-CoA, and then that ultimately can finish off the TCA cycle, or that carbon can be used for gluconeogenesis, all right? So that's all an important aspect because thiamine is involved in that, thiamine pyrophosphate. So <clears throat> I'm not going to tell you some of the details of the nutritional aspects of thiamine because it gets into a lot of... Um, biomedical clinical research. And I don't think we need to discuss that right at this time. Now I want to talk to you about tryptophan metabolism. Tryptophan can be converted to nicotinic acid mononucleotide through a series of reactions. And after ATP hydrolysis, you make nicotinic acid adenine dinucleotide by taking ATP and converting it to PPI. So the entire adenosine portion of ATP is loaded on to nicotinic acid. So now you've made nicotinic acid adenine dinucleotide, right? Now you react that with glutamine and you're just adding the amino group. And, and so you synthesize glutamic acid. It's one of the first products. And the next one is nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, which is NAD. NAD, of course, is going to be used for redox reactions, right? It could be reduced uh, for example, upon the oxidation of fatty acids or, or upon the glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate dehydrogenase reaction. And ultimately, all the reduced NAD, that is NADH, can be used in the electron transport chain, also in all the redox reactions. <clears throat> now, NAD also could be used for sirt- sirtuin activation. In fact, it's essential for that. And then it includes ADP ribosylation and the ADP ribosylation of some of those enzymes and the glutamine-glutamate pathway. You see how I'm linking this back together, right? So nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, if you take, um, if you if you react it now, you make nicotinamide mononucleotide, and then ultimately that reaction will be linked to a salvage pathway. The salvage pathway starts with nicotinamide alone. So you can take NAD, lose ADP ribose and synthesize even cyclic ADP ribose for DNA repair mechanisms. You can also use it for ADP ribosylation of proteins, the ones I just mentioned. And you can also poly-ADP ribosylate proteins, which is involved, which is the PARP pathway. Again, that's another element of DNA repair. And a part of DNA repair is sometimes associated with runaway oncogenesis, right? So you have PARP inhibitors. Ultimately, your final product then is nicotinamide, as I said. Nicotinamide, if you pass water over that bond and get rid of the amino group, you got nicotinic acid and go back into the pathway, make a nicotinic acid mononucleotide. That's the part of the salvage pathway I was getting at. 
nicotinamide again can react with phosphorylbacil pyrophosphate and the PRPP uh, reacting with nicotinamide will resynthesize nicotinamide mononucleotide, and I've already gone through that pathway, because nicotinamide mononucleotide then can be used to resynthesize NAD, and you run the cycle back again. So now you've got tryptophan metabolism, you've got nicotinamide N-dinucleotide pathways, and that's linked to glutamate, glutamine, as well as all of the possible reactions associated with phosphoribosyl pyrophosphate. Remember, you're getting that product, partially that ribose portion of it, from the oxidative pentose phosphate shunt, which is functioning in rapid motion when you're able to um, peel off a little bit of the glucose 6-phosphate from glycolysis after you phosphorylated glucose after uptake. Okay, so I know there's a lot of material, but you need to have a pretty good idea where we're going with this, right? Now, there's one more redox system we need to talk about. And this one involves, of course, a series of flavin enzymes. So you have the hydroxyl radical, the peroxy radical. The peroxy radical can cause lipid peroxidation, enzyme protein inactivation, and of course, DNA lesions and strand breaks, right? So where do you get that peroxy radical? Remember, you're getting it from superoxide. And remember, you get superoxide from a series of reactions that can lead with, say, a parent xenobiotic becoming a radical. And the radical can be generated by flavin enzymes, which ultimately utilize NADPH as the reducing equivalent. So a flavin enzyme that goes from reduced to oxidized can take a parent xenobiotic and form a radical metabolite. The radical metabolite then can react because of this chain reaction I was explaining to you before, with molecular oxygen making superoxide. Then once superoxide is made, superoxide dismutase can just go ahead and then ultimately uh, get rid of that, uh, that uh, reactive oxygen species, which we've talked a lot about, or it can react in the presence of iron via the Haber-Weiss reaction to synthesize the hydroxyl or peroxy radical, which carries out all that lethal destruction of DNA, RNA, lipid, lipid membrane as well, and of course, protein. Right? You can also get, super, because of superoxide dismutase, you also, of course, make hydrogen peroxide that we just talked about, and the Fenton reaction using H2O2 in the presence of iron will also synthesize hydroxyl peroxy radical. Hydrogen peroxide, of course, can be uh, converted via catalase to oxygen and water, and of course, hydrogen peroxide with the glutathione peroxidase can also be converted to water. And that's going to run the glutathione pathway from reduced to oxidized. And that's going to be re-reduced by the NADPH pathway, right? And remember, the NADPH also coming from the oxidative pentose phosphate shunt. And that whole aspect of that is what we can call radical scavenging. Right? That's called radical scavenging. So... Uh, just to kind of tighten up the end of this, then, uh, I want to tell you that peroxynitrite will also oxidize lipids, proteins, and DNA. You can synthesize peroxynitrite by reacting nitric oxide with superoxide. You already know how you can get superoxide synthesized from NADPH oxidase. Uh, extracellular um, uh, superoxide dismutase will, of course, make hydrogen peroxide. The hydrogen peroxide, as I said, can interact with ferric iron, making that very lethal 
peroxy or hydroxyl radical, which will continue that chain reaction of oxidation of lipids. Hydroperoxide can also react with free chloride anion, uh, making hypochloride. Hypochloride then uh, is a, another potent oxidant in the cell, right? And it can also be removed ultimately by reacting with glutathione peroxidase and glutathione reductase reactions simultaneously, getting rid of that via what's known as a peroxidoredoxidation reoxidation. So hydroperoxide, of course, can go through a thioredoxin peroxyredoxin pathway making water. Right. And I already told you about the zinc, copper, superoxide dismutases, which are cytosolic, and the manganese sods, which are mitochondrial. Okay. Remember that uh, uh, hydroperoxy nitrite is also very potent, as I've said now many times, uh, as an oxidizer of lipids, proteins, and nucleic acid. Right. So I think I think we pretty much have covered all these pathways. Um, I can tell you that whenever you synthesize a radical, the radical can be quenched by a series of redox reactions, starting with vitamin E making a chromonoxyl radical. That chromonoxyl radical can then be used to resynthesize alpha tocopherol or alpha, alpha tocotrienol. And in the same process, you will get ascorbic acid will synthesize us the ascorbyl radical or all the way to dehydroascorbate. And then that ascorbic radical or dehydroascorbate then can resynthesize ascorbic acid or vitamin C via a thiol cycle utilizing disulfide bond association with FAD ultimately linked to NADPH oxidation. So that's where vitamin E and vitamin C are involved in coupling the removal of reactive oxygen. And you can have any species of these generated by the pathways we just talked about. You can have alkoxy radicals, you can have peroxy radicals, you could have nitroso radicals. Any of those compounds can ultimately be quenched or, or re-reduced using vitamin E, vitamin C cycle in association with what's known as the thiol cycle, which is that disulfide from FAD linked um, redox reactions. Okay. All right. Now, oxidative stress, which is also an important component of this whole system, and we've been taught that we've been talking about. Um, I haven't really given you a detail of what what you know causes oxidative stress, but um, illicit drugs such as amphetamines. I think I did mention cigarette smoking or cannabis smoking, pollution of any kind, particularly that can that can be breathed in. Cancer can cause oxidative stress uh, that generate reactive oxygen, right? So here we're talking about what? We're talking about the production of the reactive oxygen species. This is the source of it. Um, you can also get a, a prolonged stasis. Like, so for example, if you're talking about oxidative stress in gonadal tissue, if you have a prolonged stasis of spermatozoa in the epididymis, or if it's in transit, that can cause oxidation um, which can lead to an enlargement of veins in the scrotum, and that's called variacella, which can develop as a result of poorly functioning valves that are normally found in the vein. Other cases that can induce this whole oxidative metabolism it can occur from compression of the vein by nearby structures. So these varicocells 
often produce no symptoms but can cause low sperm production. So this has to do with reproductive biologists. I'm telling you about it. Decreased sperm quality. That can lead to infertility. So that whole process can cause no symptoms typically and require no treatment. It has to do with just removal of that oxidation tension. But once you get oxidative stress in that in the reproductive organs, that here I'm just isolating the spermatozoa, but we can talk about female reproduction some other time. That can lead to protein damage, peroxidation, biomembrane damage, DNA damage. All of that will lead to sperm damage and infertility. So I want you to understand where this is linked in multiple levels of pathophysiology, right? It's not simply in um, the liver or the lung or the central nervous system. It's throughout the body, and it's just one other component. So I have about a minute left. I think all I want to say is there's various mechanisms involved in aging, and it seems like oxidative stress is heavily linked to it. We mentioned that a major way to get oxidative stress is to provoke any damage to biological macromolecules, DNA, lipids, and proteins. And by fueling peroxidation of membrane lipids, you can get that chain reaction that leads to the production of several reactive aldehydes, and then you're on your way to causing a, a complete explosion of reactive oxygen. So lipid peroxidation derived aldehydes can not only modify biological macromolecules, they do that by forming covalent, what are known as electrophilic addition products with them, but also they can act as secondary messengers of oxidative stress, and they have a very, they can have a very extended lifespan, partially because of that chain reaction. And the aging seems to be associated with this. So we're going to talk a lot about these aldehydes later. Right now, I'm going to say goodbye, Dr. Dan Guerra, saying bye for now.